0: you are listening to radio free humanity the marxist humanist podcast my name is Brendan cooney
1: and i'm andrew
0: Kleinman.- on this episode of radio free humanity we welcome back andrew clard to talk about a recent editorial she authored for the mhi website drumbeat for authoritarianism equals triple threat to civilization To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a moment, we'll be talking with Andrew Clark, but first, as we do in every episode, we will open with some discussion of some current events. We're recording this current event section on December 15th, and we're going to be talking about a opinion piece that appeared in the New York Times on December 4th, written by Liza Featherstone, called Josh Hawley and the Republican Obsession with Manliness. Liza Featherstone is a frequent contributor to Jacobin Magazine, to The Nation. Obviously, this is the New York Times, a pretty mainstream publication. And Andrew, you brought this to my attention, this article, and said you had heard Liza Featherstone interviewed on NPR about this piece, right?
1: Uh, I don't know if it was NPR. It was the local New York public radio station, the Brian Lehrer show.
0: I see. So this uh, so-called analysis that she's doing is getting a little bit of play outside of the normal Jacobin, the nation circles. Yes. So I thought the piece was pretty vapid and awful so maybe i'll summarize what i think that's the main gist of it is and then you can um fill in some details you think i missed missed something then we can sort of talk about it. Basically, uh, Featherstone um, is talking about Josh Hawley, the Republican senator, and his toxic masculinity, which is, for Hawley, is a response to the, quote, crisis of American men and the so-called decline of masculinity. And while Featherstone critiques somewhat the Republican or the conservative response to the so-called crisis of masculinity, she thinks that there is an actual crisis that needs to be addressed and there's an opening for the populist left to solve the problem apparently the problem can be solved by um, jobs programs and public funding of sports and of course the whole crisis for Featherstone is blamed on neoliberalism which she refers to as deindustrialization. so that's my my takeaway
1: yeah so that's what she says and there's like something really glaring that she doesn't say, and that, that's what's so concerning to me. The glaring thing that she doesn't say is who Josh Hawley is besides this conservative Christian. He's one of the main propagators of the big lie, the attempt to steal the election from the American voters. He's the person who uh, very famously raised his fist in solidarity with the Capitol insurrectionists on January 6th. Both. Missouri newspapers. He's the senator from Missouri. Both Missouri newspapers, uh, as a result of that, called on him to resign. The federal government employees union had a picketing campaign that lasted a good long time calling on him to resign. Uh, And there is not a word of this in what Uh, Eliza Featherstone writes, and she criticizes the liberal reaction. Very early on uh, in in this uh, piece, she criticizes the liberal reaction to what Hawley said in this speech. CNN analysis mocked it, the readout blog on MSNBC uh, said it was hilariously empty, but those pieces did more than say what she said, they did not ignore who Josh Hawley is. This is again just the soft on Trump left minimizing the issue, trying to wipe out the issue, put it under the table of Trumpism and and what a threat it is to us. There's not a whiff of this in featherstone and the new york times normalizing a uh, holly normalizing the big lie and normalizing the insurrection in the way that they're doing by taking seriously his his ranting about the 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 threat to masculinity the soft on trump left keeps trying to like make the issues it's It's populism and not the threat to democracy and authoritarianism and and, and stuff that we're we're seeing right now. It's just totally absent from everything that she's talking about.
0: Uh, The piece to me reads like a parody of like, like it could have been in The Onion or something. It is like a parody of this line that we've heard from the populist left for years now. It's like formulaic, right? You have like a very dangerous cultural tendency, whether it's racism, authoritarianism, sexism, toxic masculinity, whatever. And you say, well, yes, we don't want to agree with it, but the root cause of it is a real thing that we should worry about. And it's all caused by neoliberalism. So if we just had the right social democratic policies, it would go away and we don't have to actually worry about these ideas at all it's reduced to such a ridiculous formula that seems like a joke I can't believe she is applying this formula to something which is so clearly predates neoliberalism. It's almost like history starts in 1980 for these people. And that's just like the original sin and all social ills can be reduced to neoliberalism. And then all social ills have the same solution, which is government funding of this or that programs. You could do it for like homophobia. You say, okay, well, uh, there's the rise in the divorce rate and the crisis of the American family. Well, that's caused by deindustrialization and neoliberalism, and that's really the, the reason that people want to defend heteronormativity and so we don't really need to fight for the gay rights we just need to like have jobs and then families would be uh, not feel they were threatened and there's really you know because there's really a rational kernel to this at the bottom of it all it's a joke like y- you could do it for anything
1: and they do and
0: they do <laughs> they do it for every single I mean, thing they,
1: you're, you're right this, this looks like it was mad libs you know she just filled in the template it's, it was a very very lazy piece and uh, I'll have a couple things to say about uh, you're, you're absolutely right about a lot of this stuff having nothing to do with lib- uh, neoliberalism and predating it. I want to put some flesh on, on, onto that. It was very formulaic. Hawley's stupid speech was very formulaic. I mean, he sounded like he was channeling Spiro T. Agnew, which a lot of people won't remember, but I do. And it wasn't about this manliness thing, but the, it was the same kind of quote, culture war, close quote, speech that basically this, this, this came into politics as far as I can tell from Spiro T. Agnew when he was vice president under
0: uh nixon you had some critique of the some of the empirical evidence that featherstone marshals to support this thesis of a crisis of masculinity
1: yeah i wouldn't even say marshall it makes it look like she did a better job than she she did for one thing she says the liberalism hasn't offered a positive message for men lately and this has set up an existential crisis for the left threatening its ability to win elections For years, young men have been flocking to the far right. In 2016, Donald Trump won the male vote by 11 percentage points, and she very helpfully included a link to the source, which was Pew Research Validated Voter Survey. And in terms of this crisis and this trend, very helpfully, the the Pew (laughs) chart that she's using says the gender gap narrowed among white voters. Okay, so Trump Won white men in 2016 by 11 points, 52 to 41. But there's been an election since then, 2020. In the same chart, he won over Biden by two points, 50 to 48. So where where the hell is this trend, right? And and if you if you look at the numbers, some it, what it really jumps out at because the, the Trump numbers don't change all that much. It looks like a bunch of uh, Jill Stein voters. And Jorgensen voters, voters for the, uh, the Libertarian, decided to vote for, for, for Biden instead of casting a protest vote. So her, her trend in that direction and existential crisis for the left, that, that's just uh, garbage. And earlier she says that Hawley is right about some things. You know, well, what, what about, like, you know, the election was stolen from Donald Trump. How about dealing with that lie? Uh, Deindustrialization has stripped many men of their ability to earn a decent wage, blah, 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 blah. And then she says, men are more likely to commit suicide or die of drug overdoses. Okay, and this is in the same paragraph about the deindustrialization and the men don't have pride because they don't have, you know, real jobs and and, and so forth. Men more likely to commit suicide. Like you said, this has nothing to do with neoliberalism absolutely nothing okay I went and looked up some statistics the suicide rate among men going back to 1950 has been far higher than the suicide rate of women in 1950 the rate among men was 3.8 times that of women in 1960 it was 3.6 times that of women you know in the US okay the most recent data from 2011 to 2018 every year the figures are in that same range, 3.8, 3.8, 3.7. Okay, so 1950, 1960, that, that well predates neoliberalism, predates deindustrialization and all of that. And as for dying of drug overdoses, we, we don't have a, a statistical time series that goes back far enough, but basically men die of drug overdoses more because they abuse drugs more than women do. And we do have some statistics on that. Quoting from an article published in the website of the National Center for Biotechnology Information, the article is called Substance Abuse in Women, and it says uh, Gender differences in rates of substance abuse have been consistently observed with men exhibiting significantly higher rates of substance use, abuse, and dependence. Recent epidemiologic surveys suggest that this gap between men and women has narrowed in recent decades, and they give some figures for alcohol use disorders, which were in the early 80s. The male-female ratio was 5 to 1. More recent surveys report a ratio of approximately uh, 3 to 1, and this is uh, not a new article, but I mean, it has nothing to do with, with neoliberalism or with deindustrialization or anything like that, as, as you were just saying. And, you know, y- using some statistics as, as ornaments is, is as sloppy as the thinking in the piece as a whole. Yeah.
0: Well, that is all the time we have for this segment. Up next, our conversation with Andrew Clark about the triple threat we face today. We're recording this segment on December 14th, and we're going to be talking about an editorial that was released about a month ago in with Sober Senses. The title is Drumbeat for Authoritarianism Equals Triple Threat to Civilization. We have with us once again on the podcast, Andrew Clard, who was the principal author of that editorial. And we're gonna be talking to her, Andrew and I were gonna be talking to her about, about the piece. So, so and, MHI's most recent editorial is called Drumbeat for Authoritarianism Equals Triple Threat to Civilization. Can you explain the title? what you mean by drumbeat for authoritarianism and what this triple threat to civilization is?
2: Thank you, Fred. The drumbeat for authoritarianism means the increasing overground push by Trumpites and their moneyed and religious backers and their mass base, their overground push to destroy liberal democracy in the U.S. and to replace it with permanent authoritarian rulers. Trump, of course, means himself. We hear this drumbeat because this push is increasingly overground. You didn't used to know about all their plans. Now they're coming out daily, more horrendous secrets every day. Their plans to use legal and illegal means to take away women's rights, voting rights, civil rights, and by extension the right to vote for anyone other than a Republican and their attempt to guarantee they can overturn future elections. The triple threat refers to three dangers that the editorial cites. They're not new dangers, but uh, we felt, uh, this was a month ago when we wrote it, that things were getting worse and that we were compelled to talk about all of them together, even though each one is enough to destroy civilization. And the three things we cited are the environmental crisis, the threatened end of a liberal democracy, and the end of standards of truth and decency. And without the last one, the requirement to be truthful, we find it difficult to fight uh, for the first two or anything else. The Trumpites simply lie and lie and lie.
0: And the the article says, or is entitled, Drumbeat for Authoritarianism Equals... A triple threat to civilization, so why can you just be clear for our listeners what the why the first is equals the second
2: it's the combination that reinforces each other and makes the moment so dangerous uh, the um, ability to just lie your head off about anything and have a large segment of the media reported as the truth is very detrimental to trying to get people to take environmental problems seriously or anything else that's in crisis seriously. Uh, So we were talking about each of these things being enough to destroy civilization but the three of them together being a a real crisis situation and we felt a real urgency to speak out even though MHI has been writing about all these things for a very long time and calling them crises. There was this moment last month when it all seemed to be coming to a head.
1: Yes, uh, in the editorial you say that the forces for freedom and liberal democracy are losing the fight against this triple threat. But just to play devil's advocate here, somebody might argue that in the U.S. things are looking up. Uh, Trump is no longer the president and the Republicans don't control either the Senate or the House of Representatives. Uh, And participants in the Capitol insurrection are being caught and tried, sent to prison. And the House of Representatives committee investigating the January 6th insurrection has pieced together and has begun to disclose a lot of damaging facts that go right to the top. And we got some new dump of information last night. So those things, other things... Uh, Why do you say, despite all of this, that
2: the forces for freedom and liberal democracy are losing? Because the insurrection was able to happen. The people at the top of the participating far-right groups and their enablers, both very rich people and politicians, have not been brought to justice. It's been almost a year And we've only had a smattering of people, the actual rioters themselves, prosecuted and sentenced, and most of them very short sentences, although the courts are getting a little more aggressive recently. Uh, And some of these enablers are still in Congress, where they're constantly impeding Congress from passing any laws that might help people. The January 6th committee is struggling to gather evidence uh, on what everyone knows by now. Uh, As you were saying, Trump not only condoned the insurrection, he and his staff actively planned and fomented it uh, when they were unable to corrupt enough federal and state officials to throw the election to him that way. And we are no longer a lone voice. Uh, MHI had been a lone voice for a very long time, since August 2016, when we published our first editorial article on Trumpism before we even won the election. And people said we were alarmist, we were paranoid, we were the kind of leftist that always uh, screams this is the worst thing that ever happened. But everything we predicted came true. And now everything we were worried about, even when Trump wasn't in power, has come true and is still coming true. But suddenly many others are joining us, (coughs) not so much on the left or so-called left, some of which is still horribly uh, sitting on the fence about, well, maybe it's not so bad. It's better than neoliberalism or whatever crap they put out. But now uh, the liberal left media, all of MSNBC, the Atlantic magazine, increasingly the New York Times are hardline. New York Times used to give both sides of everything, and they stopped doing that a while ago because (laughs) there was no point in asking Trumpists for their views and things. For example, Barton Gilman in The Atlantic of December 6th has a very scary article about how uh, the uh, next insurrection is already here that the republicans are setting up the electoral process and the political process uh... so that they can't lose elections and if they do they can simply overturn the election and put in their own people so they're starting to panic too but my question is not just Um, whether uh, everyone's making a a lot of noise about the situation. But my question is, what will happen to the Trumpites after the January 6th commission makes it official what they found? Will they go after Trump? Will they go after the powers that be? Will they even go after the people in Congress uh, amongst them who were involved in helping the insurrectionists January 6th? So, will we have another year while Merrick Garland debates whether to prosecute anyone, during which the Republican Party may well have completed its takeover of voting procedures in the states? So, on the one hand, you have a lot of the same people in positions of power, as you had under Trump, and on the other, the Republican-controlled states are wreaking havoc on civil rights and liberties. They're outlawing abortion in many states, they're changing the authority to manage voting, they're changing the law so that state legislatures can override election results, and many more examples. And we're seeing very little pushback from the Democrats, and relatively few people protesting in the streets. Trumpism has mostly succeeded in becoming the new normal, and this puts democracy, liberal democracy, at great risk.
0: And the editorial also includes an analysis of the COP26 UN Conference on Climate Change. Of course, um, when the editorial was written, the um, conference was still happening, and it's now over. Um, In the editorial, MHI says, quote, It is doubtful that a lot will be accomplished. And it seems that most post-conference commentary agrees with that assessment. Why was so little accomplished at COP26? And why has so little been accomplished for, like, the past half century or more since we've become aware as a species that we're um, destroying the planet.
2: That's because each national government wants to promote its own national economic interests, and they can um, encourage their capitalists um, in their country by allowing them to pollute, use fossil fuels, uh, dig up the earth looking for them, etc., In MHI's analysis, all governments exist to serve the capitalist class, and that controls the economies, and that means supporting the ability of capitalist entities to produce in the cheapest way possible, paying the workers the least they can get away with, and using the cheapest non-labor inputs into production as well, including fossil fuel energy. MHI has just adapted a great statement on the environmental issues and movements, and we'll be publishing it soon, and I'm sure you'll want to discuss that as well.
1: Yeah, I I want to follow up with uh, something that Anne said, Um, which is very interesting, because somebody might say, well, look, it's even in the interest of the capitalists, the capitalist class, you know, to have an environment. You know, you need workers, and if the workers are dying and getting sick, that's not good for business. You know, you need customers, and the same problem. If we've got these environmental problems, that could be a huge deal. And disruptions to production from the very weird weather that the climate change is causing. But basically what you're saying is no one's minding the store when it comes to capitalism. You know, there isn't some overarching international uh, body that says this is in the interest of capital as a whole. What you've got are nation states, and they're all looking out for themselves. What this brings to my mind is what we've got is a system in competition, and it's not just competition in the market, but it's You know, nations in competition, not only individual businesses. And the question is, I mean, can capitalism do anything because it lacks some overarching international uh, supervision? And, you know, can we do better? Do we need some, some international system that can protect us and the environment? And is that even possible without getting rid of capitalism?
0: It seems like the best that capitalism can offer us for fighting climate change is these futile concepts like carbon offsets and cap and trade, where basically you can just pay to pollute as much as you want and uh, use accounting tricks to make it look like you've changed something. Which you know might work with other types of things, but obviously doesn't work with a climate where you can't just move the pollution somewhere else and think it's not going to make a difference to anything. And the whole logic that the leaders of capitalist states work under, they can only advance a plan if it's going to advance the economic in- interests of their country. There's just no possible way forward with that with that perspective, with that type of constraint. They're going to continue to meet and do absolutely nothing about it until these COP uh, conferences are going to be like happening in the middle of hurricanes or you know, surrounded by fire tornadoes or something. And they're going to still be talking about the same nonsense. And I think that the, the movement is realizing how futile these people are to, to doing anything. But the movement also hasn't really figured out what what to do next. The editorial notes that 100,000 people participated in environmental protests, protests outside COP26, but this wasn't enough to change the business as usual proceedings. So what, what can turn things around? Do, do protests just need to be bigger, or is something else more needed?
2: Uh, before answering that, I want to go back to the last question, because, uh, uh, Brendan, I heard you asking, you know, why is there uh, uh, no international regulation of, uh, of environmental destruction, which would be in everyone's interest, and why capitalists opposed. And we talked about uh, national self-interest, but... Even on the individual level, it's clear that capitalism's drive for profits is so overwhelming that they don't care if they destroy the earth. They don't care if they themselves are destroyed. It reminds one of Marx's day when they were not able to pass any laws against um, the horrible working conditions where you are forced to work like sixteen hours a day under the most unsafe and unhealthy conditions uh, and the workers were dropping like flies, just dying off. Um, Marx said they were using up uh, a whole generation of workers in a few years and so finally uh, the capitalists realized they had to allow some some regulation of, of factories. but. Generally, they don't think about these things. They only think about their bottom line and uh, the competition to beat out the next guy and get a bigger share of the market. What can turn things around from the business-as-usual attitude of the climate change conferences? Bigger protests, you suggested. Well... Bigger protests would be good, but even better would be general strikes all around the world. you bring production to a halt, then it cannot be ignored what's going on. It may be that substantial progress can only come about after the overthrow of capitalism. But then we're in real trouble because the approaching deadlines for reversing pollution uh, are soon, um, after which it becomes irreversible and we're going to kill a lot of life on earth. We know it's already killing off animals, plants, and people. And it does seem like sheer madness not to do everything possible to stop it. The editorial asks, are people too imbued with capitalist culture? I mean, regular people. Is it that they can't think outside the box of just t- tinkering with a situation, offering the capitalists some tax credits to pollute us or whatever? Is that part of the problem, that people can't even grasp the alternatives to living like this? Maybe. It's
1: not the only thing, but one thing that hurts is the same kind of dynamic that we have with every capitalist looking out for number one, and every capitalist nation looking out for the number ones in their country and nobody minding the store, the system also works to pit workers against workers. In particular in the United States they they forced us into this totally ridiculous attempt to force a choice between the environment and quote the economy. So what do you want to do? Do you want to have, you know, an environment for your kids and grandkids and their kids, or do you want jobs? And everybody is tearing their hair out about the uh, Republicans, Trump, you know, doing better in the 2020 election with Latinos and, you know, to some extent Blacks, and people had all their reasons that they dreamed up as to why that's the case. What the statistics are showing is it has to do with the pandemic. You get people, they're poor, living from paycheck to paycheck, and with uh, COVID, where is that paycheck? And so people were forced to sacrifice their very, very short-term interests of, gee, I want the economy to be open. I don't want there to be a lockdown because I need to make it from paycheck to paycheck. And they were basically saying, Trump is just going to let it all rip. He doesn't care, you know, how many of us die, but he's he's not going to lock us down. And they were also angry with the Democratic governors or whatever of, of, of their state. So that seems to have been, have been a major factor shifting some of the, the vote in, in Trump direction but it's the same dynamic of, of of people being forced to look at their most immediate interests because they're so poor workers have no savings really to, to talk about and then workers being pitted against workers you know you couldn't have designed a better system to keep this kind of stuff in place it, it wasn't designed but I mean it really every everything works to reinforce our dependency on them and our atomization or being being divided one against the other.
0: I think the editorial speaks for a lot of people when it says that, quote, we breathed a little more freely after the US election last November because Trump was about to leave the presidency soon. We had reason to hope that the threat of Trumpism would abate somewhat, end quote. But the editorial stresses that the, stresses that the threat of Trumpism has not in fact abated. It is not only continuing, it's getting worse, as you say in the editorial. Why do you say it's getting worse? And what should be done to, conf- to, the, to confront Trumpism now?
2: Yeah, I, I say things are getting worse because all the time Trump was in power, we thought, well, this will pass. You know, he won't get reelected. Everybody knows how horrible he is. And that'll be that. Now we're faced with the prospect of permanent Trumpism, of certainly a large minority of the voting population is continuing to support him, continuing to claim that they believe everything he says, including that the last election was stolen, Uh, continuing to base their actions on this. They're getting much more organized uh, than they have ever been, the, the extreme right wing. They're taking over school boards. They're taking over election commissions. They're taking over poll watcher positions. They're getting in every place they can where they can have some control over elections. And that's on the grassroots level where Trump's grassroots support is doing that. On the state legislative level, it's incredible uh, how they are just going ahead, doing things that are clearly unconstitutional under the prior Supreme Courts for decades interpretation of what can be done uh, to eliminate people's right to vote and so that the wrong people as they would say don't continue to vote and the longer this goes on the harder it's going to be to change these laws and to uproot people from these positions of power So, we're in for a lot of trouble if we don't begin to fight a lot harder than we've been fighting. The Democrats have been very lackadaisical about what's important. They say, sure, we have not a bill for voting rights, we have not a bill for this or that, that they can't pass. Um, I said from the very beginning that the Democrats have to get much more aggressive. Not only the Democrats, but the people in the street have to get much, much more aggressive and stop these state actions and stop uh, these court actions. Of course, the courts have been stacked by the Trumpites over the last four years, and now Congress, the, the, the right-wingers in the Senate, which means all the Republicans are stopping Biden's appointments. Uh, to some of the courts. Uh, so we're in very, very big trouble. We're in a much worse position than we were, in my opinion, than when Trump was in power.
1: You know, people are starting to to wake up to this fact that the business as usual tactics of the resistance of the left aren't working i mean it's good that it's not only mhi that is uh, beginning to recognize this amanda marcotte who's a columnist at salon she just wrote the the following she was talking about this this group that is prepared to fight for abortion rights after the uh, supreme court uh, overturns the right to abortion through the abortion pills uh, campaign she says this kind of thing isn't just about protecting lives it can also inspire people to think outside the box in all sorts of ways about how to do activism that isn't just vote, donate, protest, call your congressman there are actions that make them feel like what they do matters and that they can make a difference so you know that has been the mold in which people have been told here's how you participate you vote you donate money you go to protests you call your congressman and, I mean, that works when they're concerned about uh, getting and keeping your vote. When the elections are rigged so they your vote doesn't matter, the legislature, the governor, whoever nullifies your, your vote, this kind of thing no longer matters. So, yeah, people have got to get creative, they got to get uh, militant, and they got to think about doing activism in, in in a different way. So if MHI is saying, and I think we're absolutely right to do so, and it's good that other people, even people associated with liberalism, are beginning to say the same thing.
0: The editorial predicted that the constitutional right to abortion in the U.S., the Roe v. Wade decision, will be overturned by the Supreme Court. And since the editorial was written, the court heard oral arguments about this. We talked about this in the last current event section of the podcast. In light of what members of the court's right-wing majority said during the oral argument, everyone, most commentators have pretty much agreed that um, Roe versus Wade will be overturned in substance, if not explicitly. So what do you make of this? Like, how can this happen in a country where, as the editorial notes, quote, a solid majority of Americans favor women's right to choose? There's been a pro-choice majority for an extremely long time in the US, but abortion rights have been chipped away at again and again and now are about to be rusted away entirely. What is keeping majority sentiment from being transformed into political power? And what, if anything, can still be done to turn the situation around?
2: Yes, I think um, we need to be much more creative and much more militant than we have been By we, I mean the women of the country, as well as all the people who are for keeping liberal democracy, because the right to abortion is not in isolation. The right to control your own body is so fundamental. And the court made it so clear that they prefer to treat women like objects and like property of the state that it's exceedingly scary. Andrew just mentioned that uh, Amanda Marcotte article in Salon, she talks about people getting discouraged, and that's a problem. After all these years of fighting Trumpism in the streets, fighting for the environment, fighting against immigration, horrors and all that sort of thing, uh, people are discouraged. The Democrats came in and not much has changed. Very little has changed. And the Supreme Court is poised not to allow any great changes, but to knock out any that might somehow get passed. But we also have Congress where it's almost impossible to pass anything. So people are discouraged. I think this is partially true. I get a lot of mailings from feminist groups. Sometimes I attend their Zoom meetings. I was shocked recently at a meeting of the National Women's Liberation, a group that fought long and hard to get and save Roe. I was shocked when one of the main speakers said, of course we're not going to get huge numbers at the marches we're holding. It seemed they weren't even going to try, in spite of the fact that the history of the women's movement, which forced the court in 1973 to find women had a right to control their own bodies, that his- history was built on huge mass demonstrations, demands for free abortion on demand, not just this piddling keep abortion legal, and, and yet People seem to think they can't do that again. Even more discouraging was I got a notice from uh, New York for abortion rights calling people to a regular picket of the Catholic Church, a church that sponsors anti-abortion actions all the time, harassing the women going for abortions. Now, why aren't they working on a national political level? We need to get the Democrats and liberals and medical people and non-feminist women's groups and young women's organizations and everyone to mount huge protests against the whole system that so dehumanizes women that we don't even get to control our own bodies. Or take the anti-gun youth protests that were so huge and magnificent a few years ago. The school massacres continue unabated, who can blame the youth from being discouraged but I can't see any reason for slacking off on climate change fights because that is so life and death for everyone, everyone young, since it's only a couple of decades before the situation becomes irreversible. But I don't think the whole problem is that people are discouraged. I think it's also a lack of imagination, this belief that the forms of protest have to fall within the old way of doing things When the world has changed so dramatically, there must be completely new forms and methods. Well, the general strike is a good old form, but there must be other methods where people can express their desire to change things completely.
1: You know, there's a limit to which any organizations or group of organizations can mount a campaign. The really great actions are the ones that grip the imagination of the masses, uh, and they act on their own spontaneously. Uh, And we saw that in January 2017, when essentially uh, the resistance was born. You know, there were organizations prior to that, but with Women's March, four to five uh, million people come out. That really begins the effect of uh, resistance to Trumpism. And then, of course, last year, with the the George Floyd murder and the the mass wave of... uh, Black Lives Matter protests. You know, Black Lives Matter organizations have been around for a number of years, but this becomes a global thing that still has the potential to, to turn things around when masses of people decide, we're not gonna let this happen. We're shocked, we're outraged, and I'm gonna put my myself on the line here. organization is very good, it's very needed because once you've got that wave of protest, you know, you gotta keep it going. But I mean, the issue is what is going to grip the imagination of millions of people and when and and why? And this is something that nobody seems able to to predict. You know, I would love there to be a, a mass wave of protest and general strikes and boycotts and everything else over liberal democracy in the U.S. saving it, voting rights in particular. Uh, We don't have that at the moment. It's hard to know why. There's obviously a lot of reasons. Uh, But this is one thing that we can't know. So our job is not to read the tea leaves and try to predict when this will happen and that will happen. Our job is to be ready for when it does happen.
2: Well, and our job is also to critique the left and the feminists and everyone else who says uh, it's, it's impossible. We're stuck with this who don't fight the tendency of people to to get discouraged and to give up. The youth who are becoming nihilists uh, because they have lived all their conscious life under Trumpism and don't see any way out, people must be given some hope. So it helps to talk about, the class struggle and capitalism and the fact that it's not inevitable or permanent.
0: Well, and speaking of critique, the editorial critiques this term culture war, which we hear all the time now to describe the fight against Trumpism. Uh, and it, the editorial says that this, main, this term mischaracterizes the nature of the conflict. Quote, reproduction and gender and racial freedom are not matters of culture, but of human rights. End quote. I thought that was a good way of framing the issue. But a, a critic might argue that the term culture war doesn't do any harm. It's just a handy shorthand term, and everyone knows what people mean when they use it. How would you respond to that?
2: Oh, it makes me so mad because it trivializes the struggle. Well, it's just over culture. You can live without what culture rights implies Certain books, some, certain movies, so they want to ban books, or whatever. But we can't live without the right to control our bodies. To have safe air to breathe, and not to be slaughtered by cops and bigots because of the color of of your skin. We didn't draft this editorial out of a preconceived notion that these three subjects had to be combined, that they're all not culture or something. But I do not see the three matters being discussed as separate, but as parts of an existential threat to humanity. You can say, of course, that's how capitalism operates, but we can't leave the problem at such an abstraction. We need to be concrete about the connections, the operations of it, and how to fight them.
0: The term culture war also just has this very, you know, good people on both sides kind of way of framing things, as if it's a question of two people talking past each other, where in reality it's a question of a bunch of fascists storming the capital and uh, everyone else trying to figure out how to respond within the context of democratic society. It's very difficult to respond to people who abuse an open society and free speech to destroy such a society. It's hard to, for people to come to grips with how to respond to that. When people frame it as a culture war, it's, it erases what, it, what it actually is going on. And like you say, it, it trivializes it and makes it very difficult to hold people accountable for what they're actually doing to, to the rule of law, to liberal demo- democracy.
1: Yes. So, so, Anne, you were addressing this issue of, of culture war, and then you got into the issue of, in the writing of the editorial, there was not a plan ahead of time to address three issues, you know, that the editorial refers to as a triple threat, but you say they're all integrally related to one another. But what's that have to do with the term culture war?
2: Because the right-wingers uh, group everything they don't like as culture war. It's not that they're advocating an economic uh, war <laughs> between the capitalists and the workers. It's just a way of they're denigrating whatever it is that's bothering the non-right-wingers. Whatever you complain about. Oh, it's just cultural. Oh, you're trying to start a culture war. So it's their way of beating up higher education that talks about culture, books, or whatever ideas of freedom and of course the um, assault on teaching black history because that's only cultural it's not real history. All that gets grouped together and treated as unimportant and you're characterized as being only interested in culture and that's an elitist thing anyway to even care about and so I think it's very harmful and we we shouldn't uh, ever use that term.
1: And it's not only the right wing that talks about culture war. I don't actually know where the term got started, but I mean it's it's everywhere. It's there in the so-called left. We've referred a number of times on this podcast to a piece in Jacobin by Dustin Guastella It came out on May 25, 2020, the same day that George Floyd was murdered, and the title of the piece was, if I this is from memory, but it's something like. We need a class war, not a culture war. Dustin Guastella was very careful not to say we need to minimize concern with racism and and so forth. You know, he made it about woke language and this and that. But it seems to me that this idea of talking about culture is often a way of covering over the fact that what you're saying is let's have some benign neglect as Daniel Patrick Moynihan called it, let's have some benign neglect on the left to concern with racism, to concern with misogyny, uh, to concern with, uh, you know, xenophobia. Let's make it as if it's all about, you know, people wanting to ban Dr. Seuss books, you know, but what we really want to do is get them to uh, support our top-down labor union struggles or our top-down left politics struggles, you know, and a line behind us instead of being concerned with what they're, they're really concerned with. So it, there's a certain kind of like attempt to uh, hem in the freedom movements along very narrowly economic lines organized and directed by a economic populist, quote, left. So that's what worries me a lot more, even than the right-wingers talking about culture war. But for the right-wingers, when they talk about culture, what they're really talking about is civilization. And civilization means Christianity, and it means white supremacy.
0: Yeah. So when the right talks about culture war, it's like it's about Christian fascism. When the left talks about it, it's about Telling people that the struggle against racism or for women's equality needs to sit at the back of the bus and be subsumed by the struggle for economic populist projects. And when the mainstream media talks about culture war, it's about trying to play some sort of both sides game where they appear to be neutral and pussyfoot around the real political issues. Bingo. That's the triple threat with respect to the culture war. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Angie Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast.
2: Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capital world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing in all-out authoritarianism, Extinction. Wishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us.
1: So so Anne, the final section of the editorial uh, is entitled The Death of Truth and Decency Means chaos and constant struggle. Can you explain that? What does the death of truth and decency refer to, and how does that lead to chaos and constant struggle?
2: The death of truth and decency refers to the great advantage that the Trumpites have in getting their hateful messages out, because they simply lie, 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 big lies, small lies about everything they don't like. They just make it up. And they have their own media, they have confused and compromised other media, they have uh, Facebook and other ways to recruit people with media, and they have no decency. They have none, they have no shame, they have no problem with their lies. So for those of us who appeal to reason and to humanity, uh, we're put at a disadvantage because we seem less interesting than the fear-mongering sensationalism of these Trumpites, like uh, Hillary Clinton's pedophiles in the pizza shop basement. We have to compete with that and it causes chaos and that's Trump's obviously very conscious attempt to cause chaos. When he was in power he was whenever one th- a lie or problem was being exposed he'd just move on to the next one and it keeps people off base. It keeps the discussion from getting deep. It keeps people confused and alarmed. Human beings are not always very smart or very able to think through things in a flash. So when things go by quickly and then get taken up by other media and repeated and repeated and repeated, they haven't necessarily had a chance to think them through. This chaos and this never being able to count on things is very upsetting. People want to lessen their pain. So that's part of the whole problem. If you don't fight the death of truth and decency, then you have no way out of this chaos and constant struggle that we mentioned. You just have one damn thing after another that you have to fight until you're too exhausted to fight anymore
1: from the moment that Trumpism got started, we had the the phenomenon of let's visit the the diner in Iowa and try to understand what these people think and let's reason with them and let's try to win them over. That kind of stuff still continues. People have seen that it, it, it doesn't work, but I think what would help is to understand why it doesn't work. You can't try to engage with somebody on the grounds of reason when they are not also engaged with you on the grounds of reason. So there is no way to deal with the phenomenon of Trumpism by winning Trumpists over by fact-checking, explaining things to them, you know, left plaining or whatever it, it might be. They are what they are, they want what they want. When they communicate and they tell you the election was stolen, it's, the, the facts are, are not relevant to them. This is a way of expressing who they are, that they hate you, that they want you dead or subjugated. This is what we have to deal with, you know, not trying to, quote, understand them. I think we understand them quite well.
0: Yeah, well, I think we understand them enough in some ways, but in some ways, they're completely unable to be understood. I mean, they're QAnon people that believe that JFK Jr. is still alive, or this QAnon guy from California who killed his own kids because he thought they had serpent DNA in them that he read about on some QAnon website somewhere. These people are like completely unpredictable and live in a completely alternative reality increasingly divorced from any kind of tangible reality that I can understand. And that makes them very dangerous, the fact that we can't even predict what kind of crazy shit they're going to be, be believing in and what they might do. And the situation in this country just becoming increasingly untenable. I mean, you can't like live in a society together with people that are existing in some sort of deranged fantasy space where they just create their own like fictional reality and do crazy violent things because of
2: it. The craziest bit of it is the anti-vax people. How can you be so sure that the right thing to do is oppose anything the government tries to tell you? That you're willing to kill off your parents, your children, yourself. It's completely unfathomable. These people can't really believe their own crap. But they willing to go out there and not get vaccinated and campaign for not getting vaccinated and support politicians who are against it. It's completely insane. Maybe they all have death wishes.
1: Well, some people are self-sacrificing. And they will sacrifice everything to hold on to their beliefs, in particular their religion. The the hatred of science and modernity is a big thing with a lot of people. You know, they're saying stuff that seems crazy to us, but if this is the way to protect yourself against the experts ruling things, the secularists dictating to you because they've got superior knowledge of how the world works, and their ways of understanding the world show themselves objectively to be better safer, more promoting of human life and human flourishing, and if that's a threat to you, you're, you're willing to uh, to go down fighting and to save, to save your life that way, and to save your civilization and your way of life, or whatever it is they, they, they call it. I mean, you know, there are people like that, and I think for, for a lot of people to uh, succumb to secularism would be worse than death.
0: At, at the start of the editorial, and again at the end, the editorial warns that quote, we need to prepare for a future of continuing chaos in which the need for struggle is constant, and we need to remember that progress is not inevitable at all, end quote. Uh, oh, and then it says, we could be headed back to the dark ages where conspiracy beliefs anti-science might makes right practice and cruelty predominate, end quote. So I have two questions about this, uh, one on the need for constant struggle, and the end on the idea that progress is not inevitable. To the first question, uh, people are tired and wrung out after years of fighting Trumpism and being assaulted with it nonstop in the media. And now people are tired and wrung out after a year and a half of the COVID pandemic. and there seems to be a lot of demoralization stemming from the fact that Trumpism isn't abating but growing in strength. So even if there is need for constant struggle, how is this type of constant struggle possible?
2: Well, I think it helps individuals to have their own heads straight, to understand the world today, and to understand something of Marx's philosophy, both to understand capitalism and what its opposite might be a free society. Secondly, I think it's helpful to have an identity within a freedom struggle, like the Black Lives Matter movement or others. Uh, where you have like-minded cohorts of thinkers and freedom fighters acting together. You have a community to share ideas as well as life struggles with. And that's how ideas develop when they're shared and discussed. And that's the purpose of organization, at least our organization, MHI. We're d- dedicated to developing revolutionary theory and philosophy, which we think are powerful forces in the world and can help the masses to move forward.
0: And then the second part of the question um, on, about progress not being inevitable, some people will undoubtedly find it surprising or at least inconsistent that Marxists of all people are warning that progress isn't inevitable. What do such people get wrong? Near the end of her life, Raya Dunyouskaya explored this issue and commented that the Hegelian dialectic discloses um, that retrogression is very nearly inevitable if one tries to escape regression by mere faith. Can you explain
2: this? I'll try. (laughs) I think your question arises from a very 19th century view that progress is inevitable. It certainly has been disproved in the political arena in this century and earlier. And I don't know that even people calling themselves Marxists actually believe this stuff anymore, that progress is inevitable. Even if Marx held such a belief, uh, and he certainly hoped and looked forward to a final struggle someday soon in which the proletariat would win and would go on to govern their own lives... Even so, I don't think it's a common view among Marxists today, is what I'm saying. It is wrong, but it's not something that you frequently see referred to in the literature, I don't believe. The business about Hegelian dialectic disclosing that retrogression is very nearly inevitable if you try to escape it by mere faith. Here, you're referring to Hegel's concept of dialectics, of the continuous movement and transformation through contradiction and self contradiction. And Raya Donievskaya, the philosopher you mentioned, wrote about this in her book, Philosophy and Revolution, and she wrote about it many other places. And she shows that Hegel indicates the movement can be backward just as easily as well as forward. The point is there's constant movement, nothing can stand still. Uh, There's no uh, inevitability or teleology that makes one outcome uh, for every time there's movement. We can keep fighting and thinking and bringing the dialectic to bear on our ideas uh, to try to take them to a higher level, a more developed level, that will be helpful to the mass movements for freedom. That's what we can do. That's what MHI tries to do. We invite you all to write to us, discuss ideas with us, join us in the long-haul struggle for a better world.
1: I mean, ju- just in terms of the legacy that we've inherited from Marx, when we and others don't say that progress is inevitable, we're not like, you know, just hiding or revising Marx's Marxism. Basically, what has happened, I think, is that the detractors of Marx, by no accident, whatever, they conflated two issues it shouldn't be conflated. One is a recognition that there are certain tendencies working their way through history. And so Marx was able to identify certain tendencies, like the the growth of the proletariat, the fact that it's locked into a struggle against capital, certain tendencies uh, having to do with the capitalist development and so forth. You know, he saw that these were not just contingent factors, but really grounded uh, things that we're, we're going to play themselves out in one way or another, then there's the issue of is something empirically guaranteed to succeed or something empirically guaranteed to fail. And so the detractors of Marx have wrapped up Marx's, Marx's recognition of certain objective movements in history to some wacko stuff about this outcome is guaranteed, this outcome is guaranteed not to happen. Marx did the first, he didn't do the second. It's as simple as that, as far as I can see. You know, I've read some of Marx enough to to, to make that judgment, I think. So it's just never been part of uh, Marxist Marxism uh, to say that any any outcome is actually empirically inevitable, guaranteed, it cannot go the other way. I mean, to, to say that you'd have to, like know for a fact that the meteor is not going to hit the earth and destroy almost everything prior to that point. It's it's just nutty and this nuttiness is imposed on Marx to make him look stupid.
0: Well, I think this has been a great conversation. Thanks so much, Anne, for joining us for this episode again.
1: Thank you so much, Anne. Thank you, too. <laughs>
0: Listeners should read the editorial on With Sober Senses, which we'll link to, and write some comments, send us a question, and we'd love to hear from you. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course to share with all your friends and enemies.